Easter week, Easter week, so um, big week, certainly, uh, so I thought because it's Easter week that we should start out tonight by talking about grandmas. Um, I don't see the connection either, but it, it just kind of was a fun thing to say. Um, grandmas are pretty awesome, aren't they? How many grandmas do we have here tonight? How many grandmas? Yes. Man, I, this will sound weird, but I, I just, I love grandmas, okay? Like, they're awesome, and um, I'm privileged to have uh, two amazing grandmas uh, for my children, and uh, I was, uh, and am very blessed to have had two uh, amazing grandmothers myself. Uh, one of my grandmothers is still living, uh, lives just uh, south of Chicago. Uh, my mother's mom, she's an awesome woman. Uh, sincere and loving. And I also had another grandmother who uh, many of you guys who have been around know that uh, she passed away here this past summer. I got to be a huge part of her funeral. Uh, this is Grandma Nelvi, okay? So, um, uh, yeah, uh, my beard is looking pretty fierce in that picture, um, so I, I wish I was just out of it. But uh, Grandma Nelvi, um, listen, let me tell you about her if I can just for a second. Man, when you got in the room with Grandma and Elvie, uh, she could even be on the opposite side of the room and you just felt loved. I mean, she would just like look at you and you like instantly felt like even from 30 yards away that she was giving you an incredibly warm hug, okay? She never showed up to anything, to anything without a Dollar General bag ready to give out gifts, you know? <laughs> Literally, like... We, like, she would just be coming over for dinner, and here she comes with her Dollar General bags, you know, just handing out gifts that she had randomly thrown in, you know, like, shampoo, okay, Grandma, like, thank you, right? Like, praise the Lord. Um, she was an amazing cook, unbelievable cook. So she was a, a farmer's wife, a World War II veteran's wife. And mm, I'm telling you, like, when we went over to Grandma's on Sundays after church, it was, it was straight go time, Okay. You've never had mashed potatoes like her. She also cooked these, uh, or she made, uh, actually jarred, I think is the right way of saying it, these like sweet pickles. Does anyone still jar? Like legitimately that's not just afraid of a zombie apocalypse? Okay, some of you. All right, canning, sorry, jarring. Jarring's like, it's like banter, right? Okay, so she she put pickles in a can, okay? That's what she did, all right? She's awesome. My favorite thing that she made, though, was chocolate sheet cake. One of my dear friends uh, affectionately called my grandmother chocolate sheet cake grandma because of her, of her sheet cake. So there was one um, a holiday that we were all gathered. This was probably six, seven years ago. That we went to visit grandma. And so me and my cousins are all, are all there. And, and grandma made chocolate sheet cake. And now this, I mean, chocolate sheet cake was everybody's favorite, right? So me and my cousins, there are many of which are around my age, we're, we're sitting down, and here comes Grandma, like, bringing in the, the sheet cake. She's now 83, 84, 85. She sets the, the sheet cake right down on the, you know, on the table, and, and both, you know, my cousin and I, my cousin John and I, we, like, look at each other with this dude. It, it's on, man, right? We had a glass of milk. I mean, this was heaven on earth right now. And, and then we took a bite. And, like, to, to affirm what we were both sensing, we both looked at each other like, like, something ain't right right here in the sheet cake, you know? And so we kind of, like, 
just to give it another try, we, we took another bite, and Grandma is, like, looking over our shoulder, just, like, ready, right, with her big smile, like, this is the best sheet cake in the world, and the reality is it was the worst, okay? But listen, what had started to happen was is that Grandma had started to show signs of dementia, and like, so with her massive smile, she made the she cake. And quite honestly, I'm not sure what ingredients she used. <laughs> Heidi was over at my, my grandmother's one time. Uh, this was in, uh, I think, the 2000s at some point, And we found grated cheese in her fridge from the 80s. True story. Okay. Right. Dementia, like, started to grip her. Uh, my grandfather passed away many years uh, Before that, we started to watch her memory go downhill. I know dementia or Alzheimer's or things of the like have gripped many of your families. Can we just agree? It's incredibly sad. Uh, In some of the waning days, we would go to visit my grandmother at the long-term care home. At times, she would barely remember who we were. Uh, we would say things like, hey, Grandma, remember when that happened? And she would say the thing that she always said back in the day, but now she was just saying it. She would just say, well, you're so special. You know, and we were just talking about, like, the game, and she would say, you're so special. You know, it's sad. I know many of you have had to go visit people that have forgotten you, that don't remember you at all. It was a sad day when Grandma passed away, but at the same time, celebrating her life. The stats say that every 67 seconds, uh, some form of dementia gets diagnosed in another American. One out of three seniors uh, will die with dementia. It's a sad state. The reason why this is so pertinent for our conversation tonight Uh, is because of this. Next slide. Remembrance is at the heart of worship because remembrance is at the heart of God. So why does it seem then that there is a very sad state of dementia that is among those who profess faith in Christ? Why does it seem we're some of the quickest to forget what he's done and what he's doing? Why does it seem like our memory begins to fade? I mean, he he just did something miraculous yesterday. And and when today comes, not only have, have we forgotten it, but it's as if we're cursing him for the things that he isn't doing and, and not celebrating the things that he has and is. I'm not going to say that one in every three Christians are incredibly forgetful because I actually think that that stat is low. Uh, Tonight we have a chance head on to attack Christian dementia. The forgetfulness, the lack of remembrance that rids so much of us of so much joy. When very plainly said, remembrance is at the heart of worship because remembrance is at the heart of God. Can I show you the first time in the Bible that remembrance is seen? Can I show you? Okay, check this out in Genesis 9. Here we go, look at this. This is after the flood. I will, God saying, what what does he say? I will what? Come on. Remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
When the, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Well, this is about a flood, but what you'll find is the entire scripture is packed with God communicating, I will remember. I'll remember my promises. I'll remember my covenants. Trust me, I keep my word. You can rest in the fact that I am a God of remembrance, making then the remembrance of his followers the very heart of worship. And so tonight we have a chance to fight, work through, process, repent of our Christian dementia. That said, I want you guys to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Last week we tackled a very lighthearted text. For those of you that were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. Um... Tonight, we actually get to move on in our journey in 1 Corinthians to one of the severest tones of language that Paul uses uh, in Corinth. And, and you guys know, for those of you that have been here, and if not, let me catch you up. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, and they are in a drastic mess. We've been journeying through this now for many, many months, and what we've seen uh, consistently is though the surgeons, we could say, of the gospel is in Corinth, there is a, a very hard immaturity that has found its way into the church. And so tonight we get to unravel literally some of the harshest words that Paul will say to the church in Corinth. So here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's begin here in verse 17. Look what he says. But in the following instructions... I do not commend you. You'll remember in verse 2, what we studied last week, Paul opens his statements with, I commend you. Well, here he's, he's going to take a little bit of a different tone. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the what? For the worse. So now he's really honing in to the assembly, to the gathering. Uh, to Christians coming together, maybe to worship, to fellowship, to be in koinonia with one another. And what he's saying is, when you come together, it's actually for worse, not better. Uh, let me say it this way. Just because there's community, it doesn't mean it's healthy. Uh, some of you, even right now, like have a very awesome opportunity in this very second to look at the framework of community in your life and gauge whether or not it is for better or for worse. Some of you are wrapped up right now in segments of friendships and relationships and community that is only for the worse. You find yourself not as one who is helping the relationship of others towards the person of Christ. You find yourself giving in just like the others, becoming a hindrance. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, when you guys come together in Corinth, man, that... This thing isn't for better at all. It is for worse. Verse 18, he says this, for in the first place, which is funny because he actually never gets to like a second. Like, so it's kind of a funny, because we, we do that a lot, right? We're, and first, and then we never prove our, anyway, so that's kind of what Paul does here. For in the first place, look at this. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, he says. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
So what he's saying is, listen, you guys are coming together uh, as a seemingly church community, but when you're coming together, there's all, all kinds of factions. There's division, there's dissension, there's strife. There's relational tension. There is a consistent, uh, next slide, let's look at this. There's a consistent um, cold shouldering happen here. Uh, um. <laughs> all right, take that down. That was just kind of for fun. Um. But, but in all seriousness, can we talk about it for a second? How much the cold shoulder approach affects the body of Christ? Uh, now, maybe I'm just talking to a few of you, because some of you right now are desiring to give me the cold shoulder, but, but seriously, some of you, my guess is you walked in here tonight ignoring someone else because you didn't want to face what's recently happened. And there's this like mutual understanding between the two of you. Listen, I'm not going to talk to you. You're not going to talk to me. It's going to be better that way. It'll be better than us having to wrestle with our differences or especially for me to have to ask for forgiveness or to say that I'm sorry because I wronged you. So can you imagine your situation, a time in your life when you struggled with the cold shoulder and then you multiply that by, let's say, everyone in the room. Can you now understand the impact on the corporate gathering if there is this general consensus that there's always going to be one or two people in our life, even in the confines of the church community or body, that we will be giving the cold shoulder to because it'll be way easier to do that than to actually deal with our stuff. Now, I fully recognize I'm creating some awkward moments right now because some of you know that like, I'm, I'm like there's a situation right now for some of you. And you're like trying not to make eye contact across the room. Because you're like, well, well maybe, that's, maybe that's us. That's what's happening in Corinth. They're gathering, and, and what he says is like, I can believe it. There's dissension. There's strife. There's envy. There's rivalry. But what he also says is that in this particular case, it's causing those who are tried and true in the body to rise to the top. Maybe we could say those who are willing to deal with their issues, to not just call sin to task, but to apologize when needed. Come on now. The beauty of the body is getting to have open and honest and vulnerable conversations, giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. It's your joy. It's your joy to take the bags of ice off. Are we together? Like, it's your joy. You know it. Because you convince yourself for months and months and months it'll be easier not to talk to them. And then finally, you build up the courage. You have the conversation and you're wondering why you didn't have it four months ago. Like, this was, this was beautiful. Well, I guess time heals. No, Jesus heals. You guys understand what I'm saying? Like, we, we're such a believer in time, time, time. Well, listen, God's got his own stopwatch, and I'm very grateful for that. Okay? So the beauty of what's happening in Corinth is it gives us a chance not just to see the impact and weight of dissension within a body, but to say, Lord, please not let that be the, uh, this place. Help us deal, confront our issues quickly. We desire that, Lord. So verse 20 and 21, no big deal. Look at this. When you come together, which is going to be a common phrase all night tonight, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Okay? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What in the world is happening? Let me explain. 
what's happened is the church is coming together, uh, maybe like uh, the book of Jude talks about, they're, they're celebrating a, uh, a joy feast, a meal together, and then maybe that's leading into the Lord's Supper, communion, which we'll talk about a lot tonight, but apparently what's happening is they're actually defaming the Lord's Supper, they're They're taking it for granted. They're twisting it like we talked about last week. They're distorting it. And it's all centered around, apparently, uh, economic uh, differences. Uh, So in other words, for the joy feast, what would happen a lot of times is the rich would bring their, their bounty, would bring their food to the feast. And apparently what's happening is uh, the rich are, are bringing their food and they're not sharing at all. And in fact, they're not just not sharing or giving to the poor, allowing the whole body of Christ to partake. They're hoarding so much so that some of them are literally getting drunk and then trying to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So they're like, they're like, they're like saucing, sipping back, and then all of a sudden, like partaking in this very, very powerful meal. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? And so what verse 20 says is, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. I want to make darn sure you understand this, Corinth. You call it the Lord's Supper, it is not. It is defamation. You're taking the Lord's Supper and you're absolutely making a mockery of it. Why? Because you're not sharing with the body. The poor can't bring much. And the beauty of the body is that we get to share together. Why? Because we come to the table together. But if you come first, thinking that the table is just for you, and you leave out brothers and sisters who have less than you, then you know what that creates? Strife, factions, envy, bitterness, brokenness in the body. Huge, huge, huge issue. So he says this in verse 22 with a massive exclamation point. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, he says. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? This gives indication to what we were just talking about. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Shall I encourage me? Shall shall I applaud you? He says, no, I will not. In other words, he's like, eat at home, then come gather. If you're that hungry, go ahead, like eat up there in your home. So then when you come together with the body of Christ, the body of Christ comes together and shares together and enjoys together. But this leads us to a really, really interesting conversation. I want to phrase it this way. Next slide. How does division among believers affect those who do not believe? So in other words, for a person that is in this body right now that does not believe, and again, I'll say it another million times, I'm so grateful that you're here. Seriously, thank you. We consider it an honor uh, to be spending time with you tonight. And so you will be a case in point. Okay, my guess is you've been in other churches potentially, and you, in fact, have seen, or those of you who are new in Christ have seen, how much division in the church affects those who do not believe, which is why we should be paying grave attention to this text tonight. So let's look at a few ways. Number one, it does this. There is no confidence in belonging. Everyone everywhere is looking for two things, love and truth. And if a non-believer walks in these doors and they sense, because you can sense it, right? Come on, you've been at the family gathering before and you walk in, you're like, whoa, who's angry? No one's even said anything. You know what I'm saying? You just like walk in, you're like, whoa, people be angry tonight. Like, I, I, I don't know what's going on. 
And you, you give it like five minutes and then you can see there's someone sitting over in the corner of the couch and then there's someone like over in the opposite, like looking out the window and they're just there, right? Okay. Well, what happens when a non-believer walks into that? They're like, well, I, I guess there's so much dissension and how could I belong here? Like, like how could I make entrance into these separate circles? Because what do factions do? They create company. You know what I'm saying? Dissension gathers others. Oh, I'm really, I'm really chapped at that person. Oh, yeah, me too. And then pretty soon you become the little, like, we're chapped at that person group. Or we're chapped at that idea group. And so what happens when a non-believer comes into that is all they see are circles of people wondering, how in the heck can I make entrance into that? Instead of one body, one family, brothers and sisters with one good father and one head. Are, are you, you guys understand? When there's oneness, then someone walks in and they say, whoa, whoa, whoa these people are unified. I, I not only could belong here, I could thrive here. I can see how not just welcoming they are with, their, with, a, with a smile, but their heart is literally bleeding out to invite me into the body of Christ. Beautiful. Drastically affects it. Number two, division among believers affects this. It creates doubt about, about God's love, Period. We get to be the love of God to a lost and dying world. And so when a lost and dying world comes in the body of Christ and they see hatred, factions, anger, dissension, it creates doubt in their minds if God is loving at all. Those people say that God is love and they say that they follow God, but they ain't loving And so they walk out of the doors, they walk out of the home, they walk out of the conversation, they walk out of the grocery store, and they say what some of you have said. Well, I guess God isn't loving. It's harsh stuff. Number three, division among believers affects those who don't believe. It discourages vulnerability completely. Completely. Hey, if you get vulnerable, if you get transparent, if you raise your hand and say that you're struggling in some way, shape, or form, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to get nailed to the wall over there. In fact, this whole, like, this whole division and faction was created because I, I said that I was struggling in this area and then people just threw the judgment rock at my face. And so then the non-believer says, oh, oh, I get it. So every time I'm around believers in God, it's just a big Halloween party. Okay, I understand. So we just come together and we wear our costume again, our mask again. It's a big masquerade. It'll be great. And then we'll go back home and we'll hurt and have no sense of belonging, no understanding of God's love and no ability to be vulnerable and then have people point me back to Christ. This is why it's such a huge issue for Paul. He's going to use severe talk tonight. Number four, and finally, division among believers affects those who don't believe. It communicates a barrier, listen, a barrier around forgiveness. Some of you got to hear this tonight. I will forgive you If, a non-believer comes in, this uh, place, establishment, this building, a home, sees the fellowship of believers, what dissension and strife communicates is, listen, we'll forgive based on these conditions. We'll deal with our issues and our dissension if it fits into one of these categories. Do you know how powerful it is when a non-believer 
gets to watch two believers who there is no way in heck they should forgive each other and they get to watch reconciliation, do you know what that communicates about the power of the gospel? A non-believer is like a bystander in a family situation, say, and all of a sudden this like thing has divided them. I mean, it could blow the whole relationship up. And instead, the non-believer, like a fly on the wall, gets to watch these two believers come together, talk, cry together, hold each other, wrestle through the difficulty, and then in the end, walk out stronger family than when they walked in. Do you understand the impact that the gospel has on that non-believer in that moment? Unbelievable. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, listen, this strife, these dissensions, in fact, how it's defaming the Lord's Supper, we have to abolish it now. So he says, listen, just eat in your home and then show up. Then we'll come together. You guys ready to go? Here we go, verse 23. Verse 23. Hello. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The notation here implies that Paul has received this straight from the Lord Jesus. We know that he sees Jesus at the point of his conversion on the road to Damascus. My guess is it wasn't that particular encounter where this got revealed to him. But either way, Paul is communicating something from the the first person perspective, the first perspective we could say. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, and the scripture says he took bread. So listen, I've been, um, you guys know this about me, like I've been in the church like since negative nine months, okay? Um, I grew up, I know many of you guys come from different stories and situations. I only know the confines of the church. So listen, I have seen the Lord's Supper and communion done in so many different ways, in so many different rhythms and patterns and on and on and on. But never before until studying for this text do I feel like I understand what it is Paul's trying to share with Corinth and how then that could impact us some 1900 and some odd years later. And initially it centers around betrayal. Have you ever been drawn to that part of the text? On the night he was betrayed. Uh, Jesus knows full well that Judas is going to betray him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the Last Supper. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus notes that there is a betrayer. But can we just have a moment real quick? When someone betrays you, what happens to you? Do you get friendly normally? Like, is that your, is that your shining moments when someone has betrayed you? You know what I'm saying? Like, if we were just to take a poll right now, my guess is, is that when that friend who was in your corner, who all of a sudden you found out had been backbiting you for months, and you find out some of the specific things that they said, 
My guess is for some of you, that wasn't just not the shining moment. But even in your heart, it was the murderous moment. Is it interesting to anyone else that this Lord's Supper, which will have such dynamic and such impact, all happens with the premise that at the table, when they gather, is one who is going to betray Jesus. Most of us, in the face of betrayal, it becomes all-consuming So much so that we cannot focus on anything else, right? Listen, in a couple of my other church experiences, I've I've had some leaders that have led with me. Oh, that at one point or another, a couple of them ended up turning their back on me, communicating very harmful, hurtful things to me. I would like to say in that moment, I instantly forgave them, wrapped my arms of love around them, wished them well, and prayed for them. Oh, I prayed for them. I prayed for them all right. But it was mostly for retribution on their face. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's ultimately what I was praying for. God, listen, bring judgment now. You don't need to wait till the end. Bring it now, Lord, on them. You know? But no matter what was going on in my heart, the reality is, is it was all-consuming. That's what betrayal does. It consumes every facet of you, doesn't it? It's all you can think about. It's all you can, it's all you can communicate about. And yet somehow, listen to this, and yet somehow, on the night that Judas would betray Jesus, which, by the way, Judas has spent a fair amount of time with Jesus, agree? He's been one of the disciples, he's been with Jesus. He's seen the teachings, the miracles. On that very night, Jesus stays the course. The betrayal somehow doesn't distract him. Is it because the very heart of the betrayer would be the very one that Jesus would save? Is it because the image of this table somehow in the seat of Judas sits all of us? Those who would spit in the face of the Christ, those who would turn our back, those who though he had proved time and time again that he's trustworthy, we would say that he isn't. And so somehow sitting in that famous painting in the seat of Judas is us, and yet he stays the course. Why? Because he has some saving to do, okay? So on that night, on that particular night, he took bread. What happens next is incredible in verse 24. And when he had given thanks, the scripture says, he broke it, did he the bread, And he said, this is my body, which is for what? What's the word? For you. Do this in remembrance of me. The weight of this sentence in the scripture is inescapable. Let me say it again. The weight of this sentence in the scripture is inescapable because the dynamics of this one sentence alone have implications, next slide, in all facets of this, both past, present, and future. It looks like Paul's either quoting Luke or maybe even the one who Luke writes from later or somehow they've heard the same oral tradition. 
But Jesus, as part of this Passover meal, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says very, very specifically, this is my body, which is for you. My guess is some of you have sat in many uh, times of communion with many different frequencies. Have you ever stopped to ponder the implications of this sentence on the past? The ancient Passover was the celebration of the Jews. They got to come together and in a long extended meal led by the patriarch or the head of the house, they got to remember that they weren't slaves anymore in Egypt. They spent 430 years in slavery in Egypt. And what happens after nine plagues is that God finally, in the tenth plague, asks the Israelites to put lamb's blood on the doorpost. Some of you have seen the Ten Commandments. You know the movie. You know the voice of Charlton Heston and God said, right? So you're with it, okay? They put the blood on the doorpost. The angel of darkness comes in, kills so many people in Egypt that night. And the people of Israel, God's people, are released. And so what happens then is that God begins a rhythm of remembrance in the Israelites so that they would be brought back to this profound moment when they were released from slavery, that they wouldn't forget it. It's the same reason why you celebrate your birthday. Those of you that are, have birthdays on leap years, like, I'm sorry. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's not as fun. There, there's something fun about a birthday. Because, like, all of us in some way, shape, or form, we'll say, come on now, we'll say in our heart, oh, listen, I don't want you to, like, I don't want you to do anything. You know, like, please, like, don't, I don't want to party. I don't want... And in our heart, we're like, I really hope this, is, this year is the surprise party. You know, like, <laughs> I really, listen, please, there's no need to do anything. My wife and I go back and forth on this all the time, right? Because we're like, listen, don't do anything. And then that night, we're, you know, we're laying in bed next to each other. And we're like, okay, so how was that birthday? That was horrible, actually. That was, but you said not to do anything, right? Yeah, but that's really not what I meant. You guys, right? You guys know what I'm saying, okay? You guys know what I'm saying. We have rhythms of remembrance culturally. Why? Because remembering is so absolutely critical. It's why we celebrate the 4th of July as Americans. Let's take one day and remember our freedom and on and on. And so God establishes this rhythm of remembrance. Let me say it this way. Every Jew knows the rhythm. Every single Jew knows the rhythm. They know the Psalms. Listen, they know the pace. They know the meal. They know the bread. They know the cup. There were four cups. So could you imagine, I've talked about it here and I'll talk about it again until the Lord takes me home or comes back. Could you imagine the moment when these pious Jews, these, these disciples who know Judaism, they know the Passover, they've been celebrating uh, it for all of their life and, and joining in Israelites who have been celebrating it for hundreds of years. And then all of a sudden they hear, this is my body. Uh, I've, I've shared it before, but I imagine like Peter, you know, kind of looking down at the table doing his thing and then all of a sudden he hears Jesus say, this is my body and he, he kind of like leans in. He's like, hold on a second, that's not, that's not the script. Like that, I, where, G, could you say that again? Come on, say, he say Jesus? Which he wouldn't have said, but you understand, right? Like, what do, you, what do you mean? I imagine that God is attention because in one sentence, Jesus breaks takes on, fulfills hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history 
all of the past saying, this is now my body. I will become the perfect Passover lamb. I've done some research on any given Passover. Listen, we have no comprehension of the amount of thousands of lambs that would be slain to celebrate the Passover. And all of that past leads to one perfect Passover lamb in Christ. So this sentence has unbelievable implications on the past. How about the present? What's crazy is the same present for the disciples is the same present for you and I. When Jesus says, this is my body, which is for, what's, what's the word? Come on. For you. For you. He's saying it to the disciples, but he's saying, do this. Continue to do this, which we'll get there in a second, which means for us, when we celebrate, we're still saying, this is the body of Christ, which is in obedience to the Father for us. So that we could encounter and experience a renewed and reconciled relationship to God which was broken because of sin. It's this very, very present reality that somehow for the disciples it was staring them in the face. And somehow for us, 19 and some hundred years later, it's literally staring us in the face. This is my body for you. Neither male nor female, nor slave nor free, nor Jew or Gentile. In Christ, all can come. All are welcome for you. And tonight, the present tense reality of this passage, I literally believe that some of you have been waiting all of your life tonight to all of a sudden be confronted with the beautiful truth of what Jesus has done in obedience to Father for you. You. And so the future is that these men will get to share in this meal, and then Jesus says, Do this. In the Greek, it's keep doing this, keep sharing in this, keep remembering together. Take this meal. And let it be a means and a rhythm of remembrance for the church body on and on and on and on. So much so that we would still celebrate it here and now. He sets the path of the future by bringing remembrance to himself. And so somehow a few words, the impact on past, present, and future is incredible. But he's not done. Paul, ordering the worship of the Corinths, then says this in verse 25. In the same way, also he took the cup. After what? What's the word? Supper. Uh, This was probably uh, the third cup in the rhythm of the four cups of the ancient Jewish Passover. After they have eaten a meal now, he takes the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
They know the pattern. They know the rhythm. They know the cadence. And then all of a sudden they hear, this is what? The new covenant in my blood. And the disciples had to be sitting there saying like, whoa, 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 whoa. The weight and the impact of the C word for a Jew is incredible. As heavy as the last text was, this text, next slide, has the same implications on past, present, and future. Do you know the power of the word covenant for a Jew? It's literally all they had. The Jews were God's covenantal people. Uh, God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless those who bless you, brother. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make your name great. He becomes, at that point, Father Abraham, the favorite song of many of you, right? He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you, okay? Right. The Israelite people become, become God's covenantal people, this unbelievable promise that they will be his people and that he will be their God. And here's what they show an entire Old Testament worth is that they could not obey God in and of themselves. But all they had to cherish was this promise that they were God's covenantal people. Well, then all of a sudden, after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting on a Messiah, then Jesus says, this cup represents the new covenant. It's not that the old is abolished. The old is now fulfilled. Perfectly. Israelites, you've just proved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of disobedience. They literally see the Red Sea open. And then on the other side, on the other side, they're like, what God? What God? The same God. You just just walked through the sea. You saw like the dolphins, which isn't somatically accurate but anyway like you you just saw all of that and then you could literally get on the other side and say what god they needed a new covenant they needed a messiah to perfectly fulfill it and that's what he does he says i have a new a new promise a new covenant and that new covenant's focus is on me jesus says my blood will show not just the inception but the fulfillment of this new covenant that now belief in me, belief in me will bring a reconciliation with the Father God. I can't imagine that the disciples would have fully understood the blood piece, but they can certainly understand the past. Well, how how about the present? Could you imagine the the present implications of, as some of the disciples who had run from the cross begin to hear the stories of what had happened to Jesus. Not all of them saw the crown of thorns get thrust into his skull. Not all of them got to watch him carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. Not all of them saw him bleed out. But I'll guarantee you this, the story of the one claimed son of man bleeding out would have reached them quickly. And all of a sudden I have to believe in that moment, still not resurrected Jesus. 
But they had, in a very present reality, they had to be coming back to these statements that Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I told you I would die. I told you, boys. You haven't believed me. In fact, you tried to step in front of me. Peter said, you don't need to die, Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I have to die. And then the future. Listen, please. Is that somehow the real blood of Christ, not just the blood portrayed in a movie, not just the the blood portrayed in some passion play that you've seen, and mostly not just a blood that you can imagine, the real blood of Christ is for you. For you, for me. Fully sufficient in His blood to receive forgiveness of sins. That's the power of Christ. So as he makes these statements in the Gospels, as Paul tells Corinth this, what he's trying to say is, listen, you better take seriously this meal. And So that's why he goes on to teach some very, very heavy truths. He says this in verse 26. Look at this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Interesting, right? That he says his death, not just his resurrection, his death. In the coming together to the table for the body of believers, we make proclamation with our actions. Let me say it clearly. Just by coming to the table of the Lord, we make proclamation with our actions. And so the body of Christ gets to spend literally their entire life until he takes us home or he comes back making public proclamation with our actions of the power of Christ. Remembering and remembering and remembering and remembering. Beautiful, beautiful language. So verse 27, here's what happens. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What? What? Hold on a second. Like, there's an unworthy way to eat the bread and, and to, to drink the cup? Like, there's, there's a, a wrong way to do it? Well, yeah, in Corinth, some are getting drunk and then coming to the table. Clearly, that's not, that's not permissible or beneficial. Uh, so just for quick conversation's sake, let's look at some ways that, that maybe uh, will create a kind of an, an unworthy manner of coming to the table. Number one, look at this. Uh, we can come to the table with a religious heart. With a heart that says, well, listen, this is, this is my religious right to come to the table and, and because of my religious duty and because of my roboticness in my religiosity... Then I come to the table. And quite honestly, that's where many of you have been. All right, here we go. The Lord's Supper. Everyone get in line. Here we go. To the Here we go. We're going to sit back down. Robotic, religious, formed, shaped, not by a heart that's been changed, but by watching everyone else just do that. I believe that's one example of an unworthy manner. How about this, number two? Ways we can eat or drink in an unworthy manner with a rebellious heart. Coming to the table 
with clear, unrepentant, rebellious sin. Remember what he's teaching to. He's teaching to a church that's riddled with factions, with strife. And then they're just ignoring that. Oh, yeah, we can just kind of do that and then just dance on into the table. We have a chance to repent in our remembrance of the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ. So that when we come to the table, it's not that that we can only come to the table when we're perfect. But we come to the table not with a rebellious heart that is pretty much flipping the Lord off on our way there. Number three, ways we eat or drink in an unworthy manner uh, when unrepentant division or strife is a part of the body of the church, which is just what we talked about. Do you guys see what, what I'm saying here? What's happening in Corinth is exactly what's happening here. We have lessened the value, the significance. Listen, it's just a deal that we do. It's just like another, like we, we get a little like mid-worship service snack, you know? Like, this is great. We start to get hungry about 8 o'clock. We have communion. This is awesome. It will hold me over until 8.30. Oh, my goodness. Another way we can do this in an unworthy manner is this. The next slide. Uh, just, just going through the motions. No heart, no thought. That's why Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, before we come to the table, we are taking time inwardly looking as we remember the person of Christ. The focus in our examination isn't us, 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 us. The focus is what the person of Christ has done in us and where there are still areas of darkness that we're latching on to. What a healthy opportunity to have a very uh, realistic picture of what it is that we're journeying through. Paul says, let a person examine himself. Don't just run to the table. Take time. Why, Why such a hurry? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And verse 30 is one of the harshest passages and the realities that I've seen in a long, long, long time. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What? Hold out a second. Are you, are you guys seeing this with me right now? Whoa, 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 Mark. Are you saying that some people have died around me because they didn't come to the table of the Lord in an appropriate manner? I'm not saying that, but I think anyone can see that certainly that's happened in Corinth. He's saying that the table of the Lord is such a big deal because the sacrifice of Christ was so costly, the ransom was heavy, that we're not to approach the table frivolously or lacklusterly or or half-heartedly. So much so that in Corinth, some of you, that's why some of you are sick. Uh, That's why some of you are ill. In fact, Paul says some of you have died because of that. How does Paul know that? Inspired by the Lord. Does that mean that that's happening in our culture? I don't, think, I don't think we can take that step, but we can at least say in Corinth, that's reality. We can at least uh, take from it that we must take this meal very, very serious. Next slide. So he gives us some direction here in verse 31. I love this. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are. Look at this word. What's the word? Come on. 
disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He's saying even if you did get sick or ill, it was the the, the chastening of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord. It's like telling a kid not to run out on the street. And then they do and you come back and you're like, listen, you made it that time, but you may not make it again. So do not run in the street. But wait, I just ran out and I was fine. I know, but I can see the greater perspective. You've had that, that discussion with your kids, right? Don't go out there, man. If you get anything right in parenting, most parents get that right, okay? The street bad, right? The discipline of the Lord is a, is a beautiful thing. It is a good thing. In this case, it's what he's trying to point to. And so here in verse 33 and 34, we see him bring all of this beautiful text to a point. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, what does it say? Come on, come on. Yeah. Somebody better be getting excited a little bit right now. Remember what was happening? The rich were eating, and they were coming first, and they didn't care about the poor. But what does he say? This meal is for the body together. Together. We come together. So you wait. But what if that person's taking too long to examine himself? Oh, no, no, no. You want the body of Christ to be healthy. You long for repentance in your brothers and sisters, right? Not when you're going through the motions, not when you have a religious heart. But when you're desiring growth and sanctification in your brothers and sisters, you're like, you take your time, brother. You take your time, sister. Cry out to the Lord. Embrace again grace and forgiveness. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things, I will give direction when I come. In other words, I got a whole lot more to say. I'm kind of getting tired or my scribe is getting tired. I'll see you in a little while, okay? Right. So let's, let's summarize. Let's summarize all this. Next slide. In the Lord's Supper, followers of Christ remember together the death of Jesus until he returns. After self-examination, they approach the table in confidence that the willing sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. This is the rhythm of remembrance that he's given us. Which makes complete sense. Because our God is a God who remembers. Uh, We started... Next slide with this uh, beautiful truth and reality. That remembrance is at the heart of worship. Because remembrance is at the heart of God. Over and over and over. God communicating the the beautiful truth that he would in fact remember his covenant. That he would never forget it. That he would never forget his promises. And that he would always stay true to his word. But what if my friends, my brothers and sisters tonight. What if I told you that that same God who remembers so much. Forgets or chooses not to remember one thing. Here's what Hebrews 8 says. 
For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Somehow the remembering God. The God who cannot forget his covenant. The God who cannot break his promises. Even though he's fully omniscient and has every capability of remembering every single sin of ours. In Christ, he chooses not to remember. In Christ, instead, he says, I know that your sins are many. I know that there's heinous, horrific sins that you've thought of, that you've participated in, that you've watched, seen, and heard. But he says... I am choosing not to remember them. I don't know about you. Is there a greater truth tonight that you want than that? In other words, when believers come to the table of the Lord, what they are doing is they are saying, Thank you, God, that your son Jesus is enough so that somehow my sins are not remembered by you. I know for most of us that's hard to believe. There's got to be that one. There's no way he could have forgotten that one. There's no way that one could be ransomed. But my friends, please, please. There will be some who God remembers every one of their sins and they will spend an eternity away from him and then there will be others who because of the person of Christ, God says, you're my son. You're my daughter. So come to the table tonight, my friends. Come to the table. We're gonna eat together tonight. I want to invite you right now in the coming minutes to examine yourself. To take heed. There's no rush. To pause and reflect and repent. And at which point tonight, you can't be held back any longer. Because of the remembrance that's stirring up in your heart, come and take a piece of bread and grab one of the little cups and bring it back to your seat and just hold it. And you sit there, and then as we continue to worship tonight, we're all going to take this meal together in Christ. This table is for believers. And I fully recognize that some of you tonight, this will be your first ever communion because you've come to the reality that you can know a God and serve a God who will not remember your sins. (laughs) Hey, come to the table. So my friends, my brothers and sisters, let's share in this meal. Let's go together and we'll wait and eat together. God, stir in our hearts tonight like only you can.
draw us to yourself. Allow us in these moments to experience and encounter your love like we never have.